You're listening to the Word of Life AG podcast. We're so glad you're getting caught up on the message. This week, Pastor Tom Wood brought us a special Pentecost Sunday message. Let's check it out. Good morning, Word of Life. It is great to be able to come and uh, be a part of service with you today, both everyone here in person and those of you that are hanging out online. Uh, Quick reminder, last week, um, we sort of shared a message, covered a lot of ground. Um, If you weren't able to catch up with last week's message, you were out of town or weren't able to be here, I would encourage you to go back and check out last week. Um, Hopefully it'd be helpful to kind of see as we marked one year of Megan and I being in the lead pastor spot here at Word of Life. Um, But one of the things we talked about is that we have a one-year Bible plan that we're walking through through, and we started a new plan last week. So it started Monday, so catching up six days is not too bad, so it's not too late to jump in. So I wanted to give that invitation to everybody uh, that you can jump in, go through the whole Bible in the next 12 months, and you can do it with a bunch of people here from the church online. So head to our website, click the button, and uh, it's real easy to be a part of that. wanted to make sure that reminder was there. Uh, But this is Pentecost Sunday which is a special Sunday in the church calendar. And we're going to have prayer at the end of service in relation to it being Pentecost. And so I encourage you to have that in your mind as we're going through the message today and as we're enjoying this time together. In the UK, Pentecost Sunday is known as Whitson. And that's abbreviated from White Sunday. And it denotes the Sunday where the Holy Spirit came and filled believers for the first time. It happens 49 days after Easter Sunday. And that first Pentecost was 49 days after that first Easter Sunday. It parallels a Jewish feast. It was the day and the occasion that God chose to send His Spirit and fill and live in His followers, those people that proclaim Jesus as their Savior. And He did this in a unique, powerful way. This day, the first ever Pentecost, it was recognized as the birth of the church. This is after Jesus had come. He lived a perfect life. He taught about the kingdom that he was establishing and he was inviting people to be a part of. This was after Jesus had gone to the cross. He died. He paid that price on the cross for you and for me. It was after the three days later, he rose again, conquering the power of sin and death once and for all. And then Jesus stayed, spent time teaching the disciples, ministering to the disciples before ascending back to heaven. And before he ascended, Jesus said, I'm going to send my spirit. Something's going to happen. You need to go. You need to pray and you need to wait. And what happened was the first Pentecost Sunday. So I'm going to read this for you from the book of Acts. Chapter 2, starting verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. Now this outpouring, it gathers attention from people and a crowd gathers. And Peter takes the opportunity to preach the message of Jesus and over 3,000 people are converted and baptized that day. Now in the Old Testament, the portion of the Bible and the history that happens before the birth of Jesus. We see moments where the Holy Spirit would be active and operating in specific ways and for periods of time in the lives of people. But this, what happened on that first Pentecost Sunday, it marks something different because this empowerment and indwelling of the Holy Spirit was permanent and was spreading among the believers. We see new converts being baptized in the Spirit while gifts, especially speaking in tongues, were flowing freely. It was experienced by people who were of Jewish descent, non-Jewish Gentiles, by rich and poor alike. The baptism of the Spirit was experienced by people whose past was strict and religious, just as much as people whose past was shockingly sinful. 
this outpouring of the Holy Spirit on God's people, on people that are professing Jesus as Lord, changed everything. The Spirit filled the believers, and they started expressing spiritual gifts. Here in the passage we just read, we see the gift of speaking in tongues, which included speaking in foreign languages that naturally they did not speak. It also included a heavenly prayer language that the speaker didn't understand. And the rest of the book in Acts, it continues to describe the advancement of the church throughout the known world. And essential to the church advancing, the movement that Jesus began, the kingdom that Jesus is establishing, was this submersion and filling of the Holy Spirit that the believers experienced. The baptism of the Holy Spirit led to an empowerment, supernatural gifts, and a closeness to God. And the weeks leading up to today, I've had this one verse that's been ringing around in my head that has been praying for this moment. It's from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5. I wish you could all speak in tongues, but even more, I wish you could all prophesy. Now, this is part of a much larger topic that Paul is unpacking for the church in Corinth. But I think the simple point that he makes, I wish you could all speak in tongues. I wish you could all prophesy. This causes me to reflect that it would be better if more people were speaking in tongues, not less. It would be better if more believers were prophesying, not less. We don't need less of the gifts of the Spirit operating in churches today and in the lives of believers today. We need more. We don't need less. I'm aware that speaking in tongues is an unusual practice. I'm aware that prophecy is an unusual practice. But it's rooted in the Bible, not a human concoction. Throughout the New Testament, we can read about the different spiritual gifts that come with the Holy Spirit baptism. Some spiritual gifts, they're not as unusual and they're not obviously supernatural. The Bible describes leadership and hospitality and generosity and teaching and even encouragement as being gifts of the Holy Spirit. There are also gifts that are clearly supernatural and unusual. We hear about speaking in tongues, not the natural expression of the individual, but the inspiration of the Holy Spirit within them, bringing out a prayer language that even though we pray, we don't understand what's being said. It is the Holy Spirit overflowing in us, this prayer language coming out. We also hear about interpreting other tongues. If there's a public gathering and someone exclaims by praying in tongues, there's a need for someone to interpret what's being said, and that ability to interpret is a spiritual gift that the Holy Spirit brings. The gift of prophecy. Simply put, the gift of prophecy is the God-given ability to bring God's perspective and direction into situations. The Bible talks about there being words of wisdom, the supernatural ability to bring order and solutions to volatile situations. Words of knowledge. There are times when God will give a believer a glimpse, possibly a fraction of a piece of information so they can address a situation. The spiritual gift of discernment, the ability to sense whether something is as it appears. We also read about the gift of healing. I believe every believer is called to pray for healing for each other, but some are given the distinct gift of healing. Now there are others, this is not an exhaustive list. But I remain convinced that we need more believers embracing the filling of the Holy Spirit and exercising the gift that follows, not less. And Jesus, he taught his disciples to seek and pursue the Holy Spirit and consequently the gifts that the Holy Spirit brings. I wanna go back to something that Jesus shared during his earthly ministry in Luke 11, starting verse five. Then teaching them more about prayer, he, talking about Jesus, used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. 
and suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me, the door is locked for the night. My family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Shameless persistence. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. Everyone who seeks finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. That's not the end of the passage. What is it that Jesus is inviting us to keep knocking for? What is it that he's telling us? Keep seeking, keep looking, keep knocking, keep chasing it down. Keep up with this shameless persistence. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Have we stopped seeking? Have we slowly given up the call to seek and ask for the good gift of the Holy Spirit? Jesus talks about shameless persistence, to keep asking, to keep seeking, to keep knocking that this gift of the Holy Spirit is worth waiting for. It is a good gift from a good father. As imperfect parents, we know how to give good gifts. How much more so does God? I want to spend some time looking at another passage in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, it, you'll find it in the New Testament, and it, the life and ministry of Jesus takes up the first four books in the New Testament. And after Jesus, after his death, resurrection, he then ascends to heaven, and he promises to return, and some of the disciples become known as apostles. Now, apostle is a specific term for a messenger in the first century, hence why the book is called Acts of the Apostles. Acts is in the actions of the apostles. It could be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Now, Acts 2, that's what we read a moment ago. That was the birth of the church. The apostles then continue ministering around Jerusalem and Judea, preaching around Jesus. The supernatural aspects of faith, they keep coming. People come to faith in Jesus, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit continues, and the spiritual gifts continue to flow. And then opposition and persecution comes. Stephen, one of the church leaders, is killed. And the people, in wake of this, in the wake of the persecution, the danger that can come against them, they scatter all over the known world. And this is where we pick up the story in Acts 8, in verse 4. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Philip, for example, meaning Philip is one of many stories we could share, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Now, the detail about Samaria is interesting and worth noting because this is fulfilling a promise that Jesus had made to his followers before he ascended to heaven. Going back to Acts 1 is before Jesus went back to heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now the disciples, they started to see this promise being fulfilled in Jerusalem and Judea. In essence, it's like saying the city and state. So it's like saying Baldwinsville, New York, Jerusalem in Judea. But now we're starting to see the promise unfold further. Geographically, we're going further afield into Samaria, just as Jesus promised. Verse 6, 
Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. A man named Simon, who had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone, from the least to the greatest, often spoke of him as the Great One, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic, his sorcery. But now the people believe Philip's message of the good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. He began following Philip wherever he went, and he was amazed by the signs and great miracles Philip performed. Now we could stop the story here, and it's a good story. The gospel had been traveling around various cities, finally had gotten to Samaria, and then there's a man who was profiting from messing around with the dark arts and the supernatural. He'd been captivating everyone from the least to the greatest, is what we just read. And he's come to faith. He's heard the message of Jesus. Philip had faithfully preached the message of Jesus. He's come to faith, been baptized. Now he's following him around. This could be the end of the story. But this isn't the end of the story as Luke records it. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that the people of Samaria had accepted God's message, they sent Peter and John there. As soon as they arrived, they prayed for these new believers to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them, for they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John laid their hands upon these believers, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, it's unclear from the text that we've read why Peter and John needed to come to Samaria to join Philip. There's certainly nothing to suggest that Philip was doing anything that the apostles didn't approve of. It's likely that they were so inspired to hear that the gospel was reaching beyond Judea that they wanted to see it for themselves. But when they got there, they were able to observe that the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. Now, in other stories in Acts, people receive the Holy Spirit at the moment they're converted and baptized, and here it's not until the apostles come and lay hands on them. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy this power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this response from Simon is the main reason I'm sharing this passage today. As the apostles were laying hands and praying for people to receive the Holy Spirit, something happened that was so astounding that Simon was willing to part with money for it. Something was happening, something so dramatic, something so unmistakably awesome, something so powerful that this man with bad motive was willing to part with cash for it. Luke doesn't tell us what happened, but something remarkable and unmistakable, something incredible was happening. Something unlike what Simon had seen before. It was incomparable with what he was engaged in with the dark arts. Even greater miracles than Peter, uh, than Philip was a part of prior to the apostles getting there. I don't think it's outlandish to assume that Simon may have seen this as a financial investment. If he's making money from black magic and dark arts and sorcery, and now he's like, oh, hold on, there's something here. I'll part with cash so that I can have this power. Verse 20, but Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts, for I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. 
Now, Peter is very direct in calling out Simon's evil motive for desiring the Holy Spirit. It appears that Simon is trying to abuse the Holy Spirit in the way that he abused dark arts and sorcery. And a while ago, as part of a message series we did on church words, I spent a Sunday on the word repent and how uh, a helpful definition for that word. And this is what I came up with then that I'll repeat today. Repent in a New Testament context is to deeply and completely change one's heart, mind, and soul and their entire life's priorities and purpose in response to Jesus' love and grace. That's what Peter told Simon he needs to do. Simon's response, pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way to preach the good news. Now this account ends with Simon asking for prayer, indicating that he had indeed repented and he did have a deep repentance and wanted to change. And then Peter and John head back to Jerusalem and continue the ministry. There continue to be other accounts in the book of Acts, other moments and stories that we can read in the book of Acts of people baptizing people and consequently supernatural gifts following. And there's something that frustrates many is the inability to squeeze how the Holy Spirit moves into a neat little box. The Holy Spirit won't fit into any box that he does not want to be squeezed into. There is not one way the Spirit moves, one formula that he follows, nor a step-by-step process in how this all is supposed to unfold. Those who wish to declare this is how God always works are typically left disappointed. The desire to neatly finalize a doctrine on how the baptism of the Holy Spirit always happens is an impossible task. Even today, We'll spend time gathering to pray for people to receive the infilling and the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for believers to overflow with gifts of speaking in tongues and others. And yet there is zero pressure on me. There's no pressure on the prayer team or the pastors or the elders. It is Jesus who baptizes people in the Holy Spirit, and it is Him who bestows gifts on His people. There is no winning formula or pattern to copy to guarantee a certain outcome because God cannot and will not be shrunken down to human comprehension. I'll read that again for my benefit, if not for yours. God cannot and will not be shrunken down to human comprehension. A verse that speaks to this from the book of Isaiah. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. This is from John's Gospel. The wind blows wherever it wants. Just as you can hear the wind but can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. All we see in the book of Acts is groups of believers ready to receive from God. And we should remember the encouragement from Jesus to be shameless in our insistence and persistence in seeking God for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Assemblies of God churches like ours believe that we can observe that someone has experienced spirit baptism because they speak in tongues. But the method how this all happens is impossible to formulate. I've heard stories of spirit baptism and people speaking in tongues happening at a special prayer meeting. I've heard stories about it happening during worship, both corporately together like this in a church service or even someone just by themselves at home. Megan tells a story about being prayed for and then weeks later beginning to speak in tongues all alone in a bedroom praying. For me, I was in a prayer circle with the volunteer team that I was serving with in my church back in the UK. No one put hands on me. No one told me what to do. It just came out of me as we were all praying together as one. Others, it's one-on-one meeting with someone in their office. 
People going through water baptism sometimes talk about coming out of the waters exclaiming something in an unknown language. Someone recently told me they were part of a life group and they began to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage us today that the method is not something we can immortalize, but our charge from Jesus is to seek and persist and keep seeking and keep knocking. Back to Luke 11. And so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Jesus had the gift of the Holy Spirit, was a good gift from a loving Father. 3,000 people were radically changed after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the first Pentecost Sunday. In Samaria, this guy who was very familiar with the supernatural wants to hand over money for this gift because he sees, he's able to see and observe that something valuable is going on. We didn't read this today, but there's a passage in Acts 4 that describes the believers gathering together and praying and being filled with the Spirit, and the whole building shakes. We need to persist as Jesus directed. We need to remember that when the Holy Spirit falls, there's no mistaking it. And we need to remind ourselves and be okay that there's no formula that he is restricted to. Now, the Bible is uh, something that I've committed to be a lifelong student of. It's what I went to college for. It's one of my great joys that I'm able to come and share Bible with the church. The Bible, if it's something new to you, the, a good way to think of it is not so much a book, but rather a collection of books. The Bible is uh, essentially a collection of 66 books, even a library of 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a period of about 1,400 years. Some of the authors of the Bible were kings, some were prisoners, some people were shepherds, all manner of people. They're wealthy, there are poor people that wrote the Bible. There are all different genres that are in the Bible. Some of it is narrative, some of it is recording history, some of it is poetry, some of it is funny and lighthearted, some of it is deeply serious. It covers the full spectrum of human emotions. The Bible is a rich, rich work. It is amazing that God has protected this book and inspired people to write it down so that we can have it today, so that we can know His heart. If one person claps, we all have to. Out of the 66 books that make up the Bible, 39 of them are known as the Old Testament. And it refers to the portion of human history that was before Jesus' earthly birth. So before Jesus was born, before Christmas, the first Christmas, 39 books of the Bible were called the Old Testament. It makes up about three quarters of our Bible. Then the last quarter of the Bible, the last 27 books, is known as the New Testament. Of those 27 books, 21 of those books are letters. They're letters that are written and they're known, the academics, and the term that we learned in college was that they're occasional letters. Now, when I say occasional letters, what that means is that they're written to address a specific occasion. There's an occasion that prompted these letters to be written. There was something going on that required a response. And so consequently, Paul, Peter, John, and others would write letters to churches, or letters to groups of believers, or letters to a group of churches, or letters to individuals addressing specific concerns that were going on. There was an occasion that prompted these letters to be written. The, a large chunk of the New Testament are people writing letters to address things. A helpful way to think about it is that there's a telephone call and we get to hear one half of the conversation. 
So I don't know if this happens with you and your spouse, but Megan will be on the phone and we're driving and she's on the phone, you know, chatting away. And I can hear what she's saying, but I don't know what the other person is saying. You know what I mean? Familiar situation, right? A helpful way to look at this is that the academics, the scholars, the theologians, the Bible college professors, their job and their responsibility is to try and figure out what the other half of the phone call is. You're tracking with me so far. So we have one half of the phone call. We have Paul's letter to Romans. We have James's epistle. We have the letters that Peter wrote. We have that half of the conversation. What we don't have is what's the occasion that caused you to write these letters? A lot of times, the academics, the scholars, the people that are experts in this field, and I thank God for people that have devoted their lives to studying this stuff and they have the brains to do so. And part of their responsibility and part of their job and part of their goal is to figure out what's the other half of this phone call. Everyone tracking with me so far? Now in 1 Corinthians, if you read it and you read it through this lens, you'll see that the book of 1 Corinthians reads like a shopping list of problems. Paul is just addressing one problem after another, another problem, another problem, another problem. And he's just trying to address so many different things. If you read the book of 1 Corinthians in its entirety, you'll see that Paul is addressing problems related to marriage and singleness. Paul's addressing how to conduct ourselves in communion, about Christians taking each other to court and suing each other, about how to treat meat that's sacrificed at the uh, idolatrous temple in Corinth. Now the problem around spiritual gifts may be the largest problem on Paul's shopping list. It certainly gets more space than anything else in the book of 1 Corinthians, in his letter. Now the best working theory that the theologians, the academics, the scholars, the biblical studies experts have come up with is that Paul, as he's trying to write this letter, that there is a rich expression of the spiritual gifts in Corinth, but it caused problems. People were pledging allegiance to one leader over another, possibly because of how some leaders were using spiritual gifts and they were elevating one spiritual gift over another. There also appears to have been a complete disarray with people clambering over each other in their worship services, in their church gatherings, to try and show off their spiritual gift. Whether it's speaking in tongues or prophesying or sharing a vision, they're all just sort of clambering all over each other, speaking over the top of each other. People were hijacking their church meetings to promote themselves. It appears that the church in Corinth had denigrated itself into a spiritual festival with individuals showing off how holy and spiritual they were. It was causing strife and division among the church. Paul, as now the apostle and the pastor that's over the church, has now got the responsibility to restore order and to instruct the church on how to exercise spiritual gifts in a way that honors God, edifies each other, and is handled with humility. Now, I want to consider for ourselves in 21st century America in Baldwinville, New York, I want to consider what Paul writes as a remedy for healthy expression that he's writing to a church in Corinth 2,000 years ago. And I want to look at some of the reminders that he brings to this church. The passage of Scripture I'm going to skim through, I'm going to hit on a number of points. It covers chapter 12, 13, and 14. And these three chapters, if you have, I'm going to say nine minutes this afternoon, 12 minutes if you read as quick as me. Take that time, read these three verses. What you'll notice is that the key chapter that we all know from going to weddings about love is right in the middle. Because Paul wants the message to be loud and clear. All the spiritual gifts that you're a part of, all the things that you're experiencing, all the things that are causing frustration, all the things that are causing problems, they're supposed to be rooted in love, but they are not, and it needs to begin that. 
But Paul, as he's writing these three chapters, there's a number of points that he brings refreshes and he brings reminders and he brings perspective changes and corrections. I want to read through a number of them now. I'm going to be skimming through these. But starting in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but is the same God who does the work in all of this. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body and each of you is a part of it. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never uses faith. Is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will become useless, but love will last forever. Let love be your highest goal. But you should also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. Everything that is done must strengthen all of you. The whole point of the Holy Spirit filling believers, bringing gifts, is not self-promotion. That's the trap that the Corinthians had fallen into. It wasn't to be selfish and to have monetary gain. That's what Simon in Acts 8 thought it was all about. But rather, it's so that we can help each other that we can be a community of faith living in harmony, that we can care for each other, pursuing love as our highest goal, and the gifts of the Spirit strengthen us all. That's what we just read was Paul's advice and helpful reminder to the church in Corinth. Jesus taught his followers to persist in asking the Father for the gift of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, when our persistent prayer has been answered, it's an unmistakable display of power. All of the Spirit's activity should build us up as a strong, loving community of faith. And I personally do not care what spiritual gift you have. If you're a jerk, I've stopped listening to you. It doesn't matter what spiritual gift someone has. If they're rude, disrespectful, bad character, I've stopped listening. It's a needed reminder that along with the gifts of the Holy Spirit is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If the Holy Spirit is active in our lives, yes, I believe the gifts follow. As I've said, I believe more believers should be speaking in tongues and prophesying, not less. This cannot come at the expense of neglecting the fruit of the Holy Spirit. If God is working in our hearts and minds, what should be coming out of us is not only the gifts of the Spirit, but also love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, generosity, and self-control. Undervaluing. <laughs> Undervaluing the fruit of the Spirit weakens the impact of the gifts of the Spirit. I had a friend of mine 
who used to work for a church, it was a larger church, and he was on their staff, and one of his responsibilities is that if a guest speaker was uh, coming to the church, he would drive them around, you know, pick them up at the airport, make sure they got to the hotel, and all that stuff, right? And so that was one of his responsibilities. Now, the church was large enough that when they had a guest speaker, it was somebody that we would all know, someone with lots of views on YouTube and big podcasts following all that stuff, right? So I asked him about, you know, he would tell me like, hey, you never guess what I just picked up. Oh, man, no. And most of the time, the people that he picked up and chauffeured around were really kind, good people. Were really, you know, he would sort of tell me about, I won't name names, but he was talking about one person, and I sort of said, man, well, what were they like? He was like, dude, like, I drove him for half an hour, and he just wanted to hear about me. He just kept asking, like, what I'm up to and what's going on and, you know, how do I end up doing this and what's my hope for the future and all this sort of stuff. And he's like, I, I, I started asking him about, you know, his stuff and he couldn't be bothered to answer. He just kept asking me stuff. And, you know, when I was done, he gave me a cell phone number and asked me, you know, like just the best people in the world, right? And then there was one guy. I am not going to name names. If you come up to me after service and say, I think I know who you're talking about, I will neither confirm nor deny but it's someone you know. And I was like, dude, what were they like? And he just went, they were absolute jerk. I hated spending time with them. Rude, inconsiderate, treated him like dirt, just disrespect. Ever since my friend told me that, I can't listen to this guy's podcast. I don't want, I don't care <laughs> what you have to say. I don't care about your new book. I, if I don't care, I can't hear you because the fruit of the Spirit is not evident in your life. Maybe this guy had a bad day. I, of course, have never had a bad day. Just don't ask Megan to verify. Maybe he just had a bad day. But I can't get over that. Maybe I should. Maybe it's on me. But for the point of the illustration, you get what I'm saying, right? I don't care how gifted someone is. I don't care the gift of the Holy Spirit that is flowing out of people's lives that people are able to operate in, if the fruit of the Spirit is stifled and suffocating in their lives. And that should be a concern for all of us. Yes, we should seek the gift of the Holy Spirit. Yes, we should seek those things. But it's never at the expense of the fruit of the Spirit flowing out of our lives, kindness, just being a decent person to be around. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is multifaceted. It prepares and equips us for good work and it refines our character. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us will prompt us with what to say beyond what we would say in the natural. And it compels us to bite our tongue and stay quiet when we need to. Spirit-filled believers may enjoy getting built up by praying in the Spirit and have fresh ways of showing the goodness of God to those around them. The first followers of Jesus found a boldness and power to continue his mission. And the church needs the same boldness and power today. Believers, we need a prophetic edge to make a difference the way that God has called us to. We need to be able to have a sense of what God's perspective is on something, God's direction on something, so that we can bring that into whatever situations we're walking into tomorrow. We need to be built up by praying in the Spirit so that we're strong in our faith as we go about our day-to-day -day lives. Being filled with the Spirit helps the Bible come alive as we read and study. 
Having words of knowledge can help bring peace to volatile situations. I would love to see more and more people have the gift of healing realized in their lives and so we can start praying for more and more sick people to receive healing. I believe that we need to see people speaking in tongues and engaging in their relationship with the Holy Spirit so they can be strong and confident in their faith, that they can have a prayer language that's making a difference. We have a weekly staff meeting for the church staff. And it happens over at the Elizabeth Street building. And we gather, we have time of worship, time of praying, pray for different things, different needs, uh, people in the church, things that are going on in our personal lives, number of things. A number of weeks ago, Megan was praying, and she said something that has stuck with me. At a staff meeting, part of Megan praying, she said that God isn't taking us back to something old, but He's renewing old things. God isn't taking us back to something old, but He's renewing old things. It's unbelievably easy to fall into the trap of in the good old days. It's unbelievably easy to think, when we were doing XYZ program at church, this is how God moved. Therefore, we just need to keep doing old XYZ. When I first became a Christian, we had Sunday night church services. And after the preaching was done and we did an altar call and appeal, we would pile down front and there'd be dozens of young adults jumping up and down. It was wild. I loved it. But I'm kidding myself if I convince Luke and the team, if we would just do some upbeat worship songs and tell people to come down and jump up and down, suddenly the good times that I had 20 years ago would just come back. That's not the answer. God is going to try and God is going. I shouldn't have said try because that is false. God is renewing all things. God is renewing all things, going back trying to recreate the event. That's not it. But God renewing something is reviving the hunger for the things of God. Being renewed is a renewed hunger for the things of God. Going back is idolizing the method, but a spiritual renewal is finding out how God is drawing people to Himself here and now. And for this renewal, we need to persist as Jesus directed. Because when the Holy Spirit falls, there's no mistaking it. There's no formula. There's no pattern that he's restricted to. But just like the Corinthians, we're reminded that the gifts were to build us up as a strong, loving community of faith. We should never undervalue the fruit of the Spirit because that weakens the impact of the gifts of the Spirit. And the first followers of Jesus found a boldness and power to continue his mission. And the church needs that same boldness and power today. Well, we're going to invite people. I want to invite the prayer team. You guys can come down. And um, if there's any uh, elders, any of the pastoral staff that's not somewhere right now, any prayer team members on a week off that suddenly want to have a week on, you guys want to come down. And before we invite people to come down and receive prayer specifically for baptism of the Holy Spirit, I want to put out an opportunity and an invitation if you've never made that first step of deciding to follow Jesus, I'd love to pray for you. I give you my word. We're not going to do anything that's embarrassing. We're not going to do anything that's going to make you regret you put your hand up on the drive home. But I can say for myself that when I made the decision to follow Jesus, it is easily the best decision I've ever made in my life. 
I'd love to give you that invitation today. So I want to invite everyone here. If you want to just close your eyes, bow in your heads, let's just give some discretion to people around you so that we can focus on what really matters right now. But if you'd be honest enough to say, Tom, I'm not following God, but I want to start, I'd love to pray for you. And if that's you today, if you could just put your hand in the air just so I know who we're praying for. Amen. Anybody else here? Amen. Online, you just push a button that says, I raise my hand. But in the room, if you just put your hand up in a moment, just so I know who we're praying for. Wonderful. Thank you. Anyone else? Amen. Amen. Anyone else here before we pray? Amen. Word of life, would you please join me in celebrating with people that made the best decision. Would you all stand with me? We're going to pray, and we do this at the end of every service. The words are on the screen. I want to invite you to pray along, especially those of you that raised your hand. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. One more time, can we please celebrate with people?